I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Missing the Messiah. This is the fourth and final week of our time in chapter 11, a chapter that I've told you is the hinge chapter in John's gospel. It's the chapter upon which the entire gospel account of Jesus through John's eyes and John's lens turns. And here we've seen the miraculous work of Jesus by resurrecting his good friend Lazarus from the dead. We've spent three weeks looking at that, the preview of that, the actual occurrence of that last week. And now this morning, we're going to look at the fallout of this resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, an incredible miracle. Have you ever been driving somewhere and you are fully intended to go to a particular destination, but your mind just kind of goes on autopilot and you end up driving in a different direction that you wanted to go just because that's your normal habit habit pattern. Has that ever happened to anybody besides me? Since we've been living in Chattanooga now for 24 years, we've moved four times. And I can tell you, after we moved to a new address, there were many times when I was intending to go to the new address, that's where I wanted to go, but the well-worn habit patterns of my driving experience just took me to the old address. And there one instance, I pulled into the driveway and I looked at the house, I'm like, oh yeah, I don't live here anymore. I live somewhere else. This can happen in our lives. We have muscle memory, we have habit patterns, we have well-worn routes, and we can end up being conditioned by those impulses to do one thing when really we intend to do something else. And I bring that up because these unintentional, well-worn paths, we kind of see that playing out in the passage before us today. Because there are, among the Hebrews, among the Jews of the first century, some well-worn expectations and anticipations about what and who the Messiah was supposed to be. And because of these, they actually end up missing the Messiah, the Messiah of God, the one whom God has sent. And let me tell you, the consequences of missing the Messiah are infinitely more tragic than missing a turn when you're wanting to go somewhere. In case you've not been with us, I'll give you the context leading up to this passage. The context is, as I mentioned earlier, that Jesus has come into the village of Bethany where two of his good friends, uh, Martha and Mary, have sent for him to come. He uh, was summoned there because his good friend, the friend whom he loved, Lazarus, was sick unto death. But Jesus very purposefully and intentionally delayed in coming even when he was summoned by his friends. As such... By the time he arrives, Lazarus is dead. In fact, he's been dead for four days. Martha, the kind of more active of the two sisters, meets Jesus out on the road, just outside of town. And in that conversation with Jesus, Jesus makes a revelation to her that is unique and that is powerful. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus then subsequently backs up that proclamation with his actions. It's interesting. Look again at verse 25 of chapter 11. When Jesus makes this pronouncement, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The most important question you'll ever be asked in your life, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. That word Christ is the Greek form of the Jewish word 
Messiah. It just simply means anointed one. And so Martha is declaring, yes, Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah. She didn't miss the Messiah, but others did miss the Messiah. You see, what would follow this is that Jesus would come towards the grave of Lazarus. He would tell the onlookers to move the stone that was covering his dead body. And with a loud voice, he would command Lazarus to come out of the grave. And amazingly, here comes Lazarus shuffling to the edge, the mouth of that cave. Interestingly, unfortunately for us, John doesn't record Mary and Martha's response to that miracle. We don't know what they thought immediately after that. And perhaps even more curiously, Lazarus's testimony isn't recorded. Wouldn't you like to know what Lazarus was doing for those four days of death? Wouldn't you like to know what was your holiday in heaven like, Lazarus? How did it go? What did you see? Was there a bright light? Was there trumpets? What was it like? But he doesn't record any of that. You know why? Because that's not the main point. That's not the main thing of the passage. The focus of the next paragraph, and in fact, the focus of the entire gospel of John, what's the theme of John's gospel? Anybody remember? It is belief. Good job, class. (laughs) Faith. In fact, here's the theme verse, the thesis for the entire gospel of John found at the end of the book. John says, these are written so that you may, here's the word, believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of the gospel of John is to engender faith in us, to bolster belief in us. This is why John wrote this gospel. And each of the seven sign miracles that John records for us, this being the seventh, the final sign miracle, they are recorded for us that we might believe. This obviously being the most fantastic and most, to use the word, miraculous of the miracles, the raising of a four-day dead Lazarus. So let's consider the fallout, the response to this miracle that happens immediately after he resurrects his friend from the dead. This is the inspired and errant word. We'll begin reading at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed, there's our word, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, about 12 miles from Jerusalem. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. 
And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Again, this gospel account of John is from start to finish about believing. It's about faith. And this gospel account was either written to new believers in the faith that they might have their faith bolstered. It may be written to those who are kind of investigating or considering faith in Jesus. You see, because we see in this gospel account not only fantastic case studies of radical faith in Jesus, but just as much as this gospel account is a depiction for us of belief, It's also a depiction for us of unbelief. There are also case study after case study in John's gospel of people who did not believe in Jesus. Sometimes when taking small sections week by week of the whole 21 chapters, we can miss some of the overall themes that John is writing, whereas if you were to just read the whole book in one sitting, you'd probably pick up on it. One such theme under the main theme of belief, is that Jesus causes division. Do you know that to be true? It's true in the first century. People were divided over Jesus. It's true in the 21st century. People are still divided over Jesus. Now, let me show you some examples of this throughout John's gospel. Back in chapter 7, here we see some division. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people. People are divided over Jesus. You fast forward to chapter 9, we find this record. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Another example of division over Jesus. Then finally, John chapter 10, verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. I think sometimes we get this caricature of what we think Jesus is supposed to be or what he's supposed to accomplish when he comes. We think, well, Jesus is just going to gather together all the people from every land and every tribe and tongue, and we're just all going to sing an acapella version of Kumbaya together. Jesus brings division. Some of you recognize this. You've experienced division in your family. You've experienced division in your community, in your workplace, at your school. Jesus, in the first century and in the 21st century, brings division wherever he's named. And friends, it's not going to end until Christ comes back and sets all things new. There's always division over Jesus. And some here, in this episode here in chapter 11, believed in Jesus. I mean, after all, he just raised a four-day dead Lazarus from the dead, while others went and tattletailed to the Pharisees. Division. They missed the Messiah. Now, here's the deal. If you don't want to miss the Messiah, there are three don'ts I'm going to give to you that I've gleaned from this passage. Don't do these three things if you don't want to miss 
the Messiah. Here they are. The first one is this. Number one, don't dismiss the power of Jesus. Do not dismiss the overwhelming power of Jesus. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Think about it. The people who, quote, believed and the other people who went and tattletailed to the Pharisees, they saw the same thing. They were all witnesses of the same power of Jesus. Look how it's recorded again, verse 45. Many of the Jews, many who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what did they see him do? They saw him resurrect a four-day dead Lazarus. What did they do? Many believed in him. Good. That's the point of the Gospel of John. But some, who's the some? Some of the same people in the crowd. Some of the same friends and neighbors who were there in Bethany. Some of the paid mourners who had come to pay their respects. Some of the ones who went there to grieve over this death. They went to this funeral, and the one thing nobody ever expects to happen at a funeral happens. The dead person came back to life. They all saw the same thing. They all witnessed the same power. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is absolutely mind-blowing. What? You saw what Jesus did? You saw him command with a megaphone, with a loud voice, and Lazarus came out of the tomb, and yet you still went and told the Pharisees like a bunch of tattletales? You saw Lazarus hobble out of the cave and being tightly bound with linen strips, and you still didn't believe? Now, obviously, many, John says, did believe. But some said, "Mm, still not enough evidence. I need some more convincing. And so they brought the news to the Pharisees. They found in Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus another opportunity to get Jesus in trouble. Now, this is one more reason we can get Jesus in trouble here. I can't believe what Jesus has done now. He's actually resurrected somebody from the dead. What a horrible person. I want you to think for a minute about what this reveals about the nature of unbelief. The nature of unbelief. Again, they saw a bona fide miracle. We might even suppose ourselves in times of doubt. You ever had a time of doubt? Jesus, if you would just show me some kind of a miracle, I'd know you're real. If I could just see some kind of a powerful work on your part, I would believe. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. And really, this unbelief is deeper than even that. You see, they believe, yes, that a miracle had actually occurred. They couldn't discount that. They believe Jesus was, in fact, the source of the miracle. There's no evidence here that they thought, well, Jesus is just a really good magician. He's an illusionist. This is some sleight of hand. There's mirrors. There's some, some curtain that he's got this guy hiding behind. None of that. They said, in verse 46, they told them what Jesus had done. He resurrected somebody. Amazing. There's no evidence, again, that they doubted that this was a legitimate miracle. They saw the power of Jesus, and they dismissed that power. And even the Sanhedrin, the judicial council over the Jews, they recognized it as legitimate. Look at the next verse, verse 47. They said, what are we to do? 
For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They were aware that Jesus had performed other miracles. No doubt fresh in their mind is the healing of the man born blind, and they made a mess of it all in their subsequent blundering of the interrogations of this man born blind and his parents. They were left with egg on their face from the whole thing. There was multiple confirmed, multiple attested miracles. You see, because the deal is this. Listen, we as human beings are not so much rational creatures as much as we are rationalizing creatures. We're not so much rational that we will make an honest assessment of the facts. We're rationalizing creatures. That's called confirmation bias. We all have a bias. We all have a bent in one direction or the other. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. If Jesus shows compassion to those who are downtrodden, he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. If Jesus heals someone, oh, he did it on the Sabbath day and broke our traditions. If he brings a man back to life, oh, this is going to get us in trouble with the Romans. It didn't matter what Jesus did or what Jesus said, it was only going to confirm their predetermined conclusions. He's an imposter, and he's got to go. For some reason, one of the TV shows that regularly shows up on our family television in our living room is the TV show Finding Bigfoot. Not sure why, but it shows up from time to time in our home. I may have even sat down and watched it on occasion. Now, you need to know this show, it's, it chronicles four Sasquatch investigators. They are professional Bigfoot hunters. And this show has been going on Animal Planet, listen, for 12 seasons. And amazingly, after 12 years, they still haven't found Bigfoot. <laughs> but they believe he's out there. And anytime there's any kind of sighting anywhere in the country, any type of footprint, any type of hair stuck on a twig, they load up in the Bigfoot mobile and they head to that locale because they want to find Bigfoot. They believe. Don't confuse them with the facts. We all have a HD camera in our pockets every day. There's no good pictures of Bigfoot, but we believe he's real. Confirmation bias. Maybe you're here today. And your mind is already made up about Jesus. Yeah, 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 whatever. I mean, I'm not anti-Jesus. I'm not opposed to the idea of people loving Jesus or whatever. It's just not for me. I'm just really not interested. Perhaps you have, like these men and women here in John 11, you've dismissed the power of Jesus. Perhaps you've seen answered prayer dismissed. Perhaps you've encountered a transformed life because of an encounter with Christ, dismissed. Perhaps you've heard testimony of supernatural provision in a time of need, dismissed. Perhaps even here you see the testimony of the miraculous power of Jesus, dismissed. Or maybe most of all, you're pushing away your own sin. You're pushing away the own reality that you have in your heart today, the need of 
divine forgiveness. Let's just push that down. We dismiss the power of Jesus. These people here in John 11, they saw miracles and they completely dismissed his power. And as such, they missed the Messiah. Here's the second thing don't do. Don't disregard the person of Jesus. Don't disregard the person of Jesus. So some of these onlookers, they go and they inform the Pharisees what they've seen and what they've heard. They tell them what Jesus has done. And so the chief priest and the Pharisees, they go and they call together the rest of the council. This council is known as the Sanhedrin. It was made up of 70 leading men in Israel, in Judah, in Jerusalem. The Pharisees didn't have the authority in and of themselves to make any type of judicial action. Any judicial action had to be made by this council of 70. Now, the Sanhedrin, again, this council of Jewish authority, uh, it was functioning under the auspices of the Roman Empire, the Roman government. And this is kind of the genius of the Roman Empire. Anytime they would go into a region or a city and they would conquer that area, that region, that city, they would leave in place the kind of local government structure that already existed. So the, the practices and the habits of that region, they still function in that under the authority of the Romans. And this is what you see happening here in Jerusalem. They left the Sanhedrin in power. And chief among these 70 elders was actually the high priest. He was the ranking member, if you will, of this committee. The high priest, which is an interesting dynamic, the high priest, you think, is an ultimate religious position. He was not selected by the people at large in some type of an election or referendum. He was not even selected by the 70 Sanhedrin. He was appointed by the Roman prefect. He was a stooge of the Roman government. And that's Caiaphas here in this passage. And so, as you might imagine, the high priest is not going to do anything or say anything that's going to upset his position or power. Now, here in America, we have three branches of government, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive, three separate branches of government. In this sub-branch of government under the Roman authority in Jerusalem, those three branches were all done and fulfilled by the same Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the ones that passed the laws. They're the legislative branch. The Sanhedrins are the ones that executed judgments. They're the judicial branch, and then they're the executive branch, chiefly found in this high priest, the ranking member of the Sanhedrin. So this council gets together, and they say, okay, this problem of Jesus as the Messiah has gotten out of control. How do you solve a problem like Messiah? You Sound of Music fans, that one was for you. Um, so how do you solve this problem of Jesus? How, how do you fix it? Because this latest miracle, news about him is going to spread. It's going to go berserk. It's going to boil over into this messianic fervor. Leading to what do they anticipate? An insurrection, a rebellion against Rome. This, of course, would be met, they know, with swift and harsh judgment by the Romans. Now, the Sanhedrin con concluded that, well, if this is going to happen, what do we need to do? Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away two things, our place 
and our nation. They're saying we can't let this get to the point where this next Messiah figure with a Messiah complex and a long line of Messiah figures and Messiah complexes within Jewish history comes and gets this great following of people who, who are going to look at him as a leader and this rebel who are going to march forward and start a rebellion, uh, have this guerrilla warfare to try to take out the Romans. We can't let this happen. You see, they've seen this pattern before with would-be messiahs. Because here's the thing, their concept of a messiah was not just someone who was a fantastic communicator like Jesus was, but their concept of messiah was that he was going to be a military leader who was going to lead this revolt to throw off the pagan occupiers and reinstall a proper king in Jerusalem from the line of David. So the members of the council, the Sanhedrin, they can connect the dots. They can put it all together. And they knew that the likely conclusion was this. They will come, the Romans, and they will squash any type of insurrection, and they may just decide to take away both our place and our nation. What are they talking about, place and nation? The place was the place of the temple. The temple complex was the majestic emblem of ethnic Jewish identity. It was their point of pride. It's what they pointed to. We've got the temple. They said, they're going to come, and they're going to take away our place. They also said, he's going to come, the Romans, and take away our nation. Greek word there under nation is the word ethnos, from which we get our English words ethnic or ethnicity. Let me ask you, has there ever been attempts to eradicate the ethnicity of the Jewish people? Has that ever happened? Yes, of course. It's happened already in Israel's history. Several centuries earlier, the Assyrians come in and the ten northern tribes of Israel were wiped out, eradicated from human history. All that's left of Israel, the southern two kingdoms. What happens next? The Babylonians conquer the southern two kingdoms and they deport them 900 miles away across the desert up to Iraq and to Babylon. And they're there under siege and slavery for 70 years. And finally, some of their descendants pilgrimage back to the Holy Land and set up camp back in Jerusalem again and rebuild the walls and eventually the temple. So they know the history. They know the history that previous pagan occupiers like the Greeks have come into this precious sacred space called the temple and they have perverted it and they have performed sacrilegious things like sacrificing pigs. If this happens again, We've seen it before in history. History will repeat itself. They'll come in here. They'll squash the rebellion. They'll take away our place, and they'll eradicate our ethnos. They'll take away our ethnicities. Obviously, 1,900 years from this point, someone else by the name of Adolf Hitler and the German Nazis sought to wipe them from the face of the earth again. So this is the chatter happening among the Sanhedrin. If we allow this Jesus movement to continue, it's going to threaten everything. We're going to lose everything. There is great irony in this, and we'll look at some of these profound ironies in all that they're saying and all that they're expecting in just a moment. So, what do we know about this? I want you to think about this reality. When Jesus comes into a place, he will upset that place and that nation. 
This is what Jesus does. And this is particularly what I'm praying for these 40 days. I'm praying that Jesus comes into my life, that Jesus comes into my home and my family, and he turns upside down that place and that people. Are you praying for that? That this is what God would do among us? That the things we cling so tightly to, that we love, that we pursue, that Jesus would come in and turn them upside down. Interesting, notice how Caiaphas, the high priest, responds to all their chatter among the 70 men of the Sanhedrin. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. In other words, you guys are a bunch of idiots. You don't have a clue what you're talking about and what we need to do to solve this problem. He's tired of the endless discussion and debate, the way they handled the issue with the man born blind, left him completely embarrassed, and he has determined we're not going to let that happen again. You know nothing at all. He knows they need to take much sterner Measures And they conclude, you can see in verse 53, they cross an incredible threshold. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They're going to kill Jesus. Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. It's one thing to breathe out threats. It's another thing to put those threats in motion. And they are making plans, according to verse 53. Distinct, clear, bullet point by bullet point, plans how we're going to kill Jesus. One of those bullet points, uh, excuse me, high priest Caiaphas, I've heard there may be one of his inner circle that can be bought for a price. Let's go after him. They are making point by point plans to kill Jesus. He's got to go. What's amazing is that through this entire process, they never seem to evaluate the distinct possibility, maybe Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe he is the anointed one. Maybe he is, as he claims to be, and as his works testify, the Son of God. They completely disregard the person of Jesus because they're trying to hold on to whatever semblance of power and control in their minuscule lives they have. Have you ever wondered why atheists are so rabid against the thought of God? I have an admission to you. I do not believe in the tooth fairy. But I don't go on campaigns to stamp out any mention of the tooth fairy in society. It is inconsequential if you or your children believe in the tooth fairy. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Why do atheists actually become anti-theists? Because there's a burning sensation in their heart that they know it's true. In fact, look at this next slide. Unbelief may seem neutral at first, but it does not stay there very long. Think about it. Jesus brought a dead man back to life. This was confirmed fact. And somehow in their delusional, demonic calculations, ah, we need to kill him. 
Unbelief may seem neutral at first, but it does not stay there very long. That's how it happens. Hearts become harder. The Puritans had a saying. They would say the same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. The same gospel message that you have many received and it melted your heart to believe in Jesus, that same gospel message makes hard hearts harder. I would ask you, have you hardened your heart to the power of Jesus and to the person of Jesus like these very religious people did and they missed the Messiah? So don't dismiss the power of Jesus. Don't disregard the person of Jesus. Here's the third and final thing. Number three, don't diminish the purpose of Jesus. Don't diminish the purpose of Jesus. I mentioned earlier, this whole section is filled with irony. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he, as he is recording these actual events, he's stacking irony on top of irony on top of irony. Some of you 90s music lovers may remember the hit song by Alanis Morissette, Ironic. Anybody remember this song? The ironic thing about her song, which was number one for six weeks in early 1996, is all of her descriptions and examples were not ironic. They were just bad luck or misfortune. It it raining on your wedding day, that's not irony. Now, if it rains on your wedding day and you're marrying the weatherman, that's irony, right? (laughs) So here is this irony in this passage. Isn't it ironic? And what I mean by that is there's something happening that we can see on the human level, and unbeknownst to these conspirators, God is doing something completely different, that they have no idea what he's doing in Jesus. Isn't it ironic? On the human level, they think they've got all these plans that we're going to kill Jesus, we're going to squelch this movement, and the great irony is that God's going to use that to make his church go global. Isn't it ironic? (laughs) Here's some of the irony in the passage. The Sanhedrin are motivated by the fact that we don't want to lose our place and our nation, our ethnos. Within a generation, less than 40 years, this very temple that they're so concerned about will be raised to the ground, and as Jesus predicted in, John, in Matthew 24, not one stone will be left on top of another. Isn't it ironic? Another irony in verse 52, Caiaphas wants to kill Jesus because in so doing, it's going to be a political mover, move, maneuver that will squash any uprising and, and then pave the way, he thought, to bring about the ethnic scattering of Jews from all over back to their homeland, back to Israel, so that there'll be one nation in one place. The great irony here is that in killing Jesus, there would be one nation, there would be one kingdom, but it would not be just a Jewish kingdom, because Jesus is going to gather together a kingdom of people from not just the Jews, but from every nation. Every ethnicity will make up the kingdom of Jesus. In fact, the apostle Peter speaking to Gentile Christians, writing to them who are being under great persecution. Notice what he says. He uses some of the same language as Caiaphas here. He says, but you, you Gentiles, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
ethnos, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How did all this happen? Because Caiaphas chose to kill Jesus, and Jesus and God created a new nation. Isn't it ironic? Or notice verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover. Why? To purify themselves. What is Passover a picture of? The sacrificial lamb, the blood of which cast over the doorpost would bring healing and forgiveness and protection from the judgment of God for all? It's a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And here's the great irony that these people went up to purify themselves because of their uncleanness, but Jesus, the true Passover land, is the only one who can clean us from our impurity. Isn't that ironic? But I think the most obvious and captivating irony in this passage is when Caiaphas makes this pronouncement, and he intends one thing, and he has no idea the profound application God is going to make from his words, the irony that is going to come about. Look again at verse 50. Caiaphas says, after he says, you guys don't know nothing at all. You're clueless. He says, here's what we've got to do. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas is saying, if Jesus dies, we live. Rome's going to come. They're going to wipe us out. But if Jesus dies, we live. And God says, guess what? If Jesus dies, you get to live. Isn't it ironic? And it's amazing how John records how Caiaphas came up with this statement, this prophecy. Look at verse 51. John says, he, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord. Wait a second, he thought of it. It came through his vocal cords, out of his lips, to those ears gathered together, and John says, he didn't come up with this on himself. He didn't come up with this on his own accord. You see, God the sovereign, providential ruler of the universe brought these words out of Caiaphas's mouth. And he meant one thing, but God says, guess what? I'm going to do something completely different. And this is not God taking lemons. Oh, they're conspiring against my son and making lemonade. This is God's purpose. Friend, before anything was anything in the eternal mind of the triune God, before God spoke light heaven, earth into existence in the eternal mind of the triune God, they had a purpose of how to bring great glory to God. And that is that the Son of God would die for sinners like you and I. That was purpose before anybody was anything. And in AD 33, Jesus fulfilled the purpose of God. But that's not the end of the story. For all of eternity, God's going to keep that promise. God's going to keep it. This is what's happening here. It's not a coincidental, tragic set of events. It's the providential work of God working through these evil, wicked, self-motivated people to accomplish the salvation of sinners like me and you. 
One word can describe what Caiaphas is saying and what God is intending. Friend, this is the word that sums up the Christian faith. If somebody asks you, can you tell me in a word, what does Christianity mean? Here's the word. You ready? You want to write this down. Substitution. This is the Christian faith in a nutshell. Substitution. Caiaphas says, we need to substitute his life for our life. God says, I'm substituting Jesus, my son, for you. We, we see this plan of substitution revealed in the scriptures. And perhaps the most obvious place, Isaiah 53. Notice this plan and purpose of substitution. 700 years before Caiaphas said, we need a substitute. God says in verse 6 of Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you know what that is? Substitution. Then verse 10. Again, long before Caiaphas ever spoke it, God ordained it. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. He, God the Father, has put him, Jesus, to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. In fact, look at this next slide if you want to see the irony. Caiaphas killed Jesus so the Romans wouldn't kill them. But God the Father killed his son Jesus so he wouldn't have to kill you. God killed his son to assuage the wrath, to take the penalty, to bear the death so you wouldn't have to. That's substitution. Long before the Sanhedrin put their puny plans into motion, God purposed it. Friend, I don't want you to miss the Messiah. I don't want you to miss Jesus by diminishing the purpose for which Jesus came to be the death-incurring substitute for sinners. And for the last two months, we've been talking about Jesus leads us, how he is the good shepherd, and what the good shepherd does for the sheep. Notice in John 10, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, what the good shepherd does for the sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, watch this, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Substitution. Watch this. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The Jews to whom Jesus was speaking, they were part of that flock. But you know who the other sheep are? Us. <laughs> we are the other sheep. We are the outcasts and the dregs of society that Jesus says, yeah, they're my other sheep. They're going to hear my voice. I'm going to call them. There will be one flock, not two, and there will be one shepherd over that flock. And this same John who wrote about what's happening here with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and all of their puny plans he saw with his own eyes a revelation of these promises come to fruition. He heard the singing of the angelic hosts. 
in Revelation 5 proclaimed these words. Notice what they said. You, Jesus, were slain at substitution. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and ethnos. And you have made them, all the different peoples, from every location, from every generation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Again, it was planned and purposed in the mind of God in eternity past. It was accomplished in AD 33 through the Son of God, Jesus, and it is being kept in heaven for you. The great salvation we have in the substitute, Jesus. This is our God, and he is accomplishing all of his purposes. Don't miss it. Don't miss the Messiah. And that leads to my last thought. The good shepherd is gathering his flock from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Are you a citizen of his eternal kingdom?